Hello and welcome to Series 4 of the Lawyers Coach Podcast. My name is Oliver Hansard and each episode of this podcast will feature myself or Claire Rayson, both of us coaches and former lawyers, trying to find out what makes lawyers tick. We will be hearing from various guests and experts and then at the end of each episode, we will both be reflecting on what they said. The Lawyers Coach Podcast is brought to you by Client Talk and Hansard Coaching. In this episode, Claire Rayson is talking to Anthony Kearns, Chief Client Experience Officer at Lander and Rogers, based in Australia. He talks to Claire about how he's bringing client experience into law firms, the value that lawyers bring and how that is changing, and the role lawyers will have when technology becomes even more influential than it is today. Claire starts by asking Anthony what attracted him to the law in the first place. I sort of became a lawyer accidentally. Uh, So I was one of those people who did better at school than anybody expected, including myself. Uh, And I was fully prepared at that stage to be one of two things, um, to to be a professional musician. I'm a violist or was a violist, um, which would have been a life of syncopation, which will be a joke that makes sense to um, viola players all around the world. Or alternatively, to be a chef. And I had enrolled in cooking school, so I had enrolled to become a chef, um, a cook, and that was my great passion at that stage. But it turned out I got a better mark than... Um, anyone expected, and my dad talked me into going to law school, which I enjoyed, and I enjoyed being a lawyer. I enjoyed aspects of being a lawyer, but it wasn't really anything that I was particularly suited to. Uh, I enjoyed aspects of being a lawyer uh, that were more interpersonal, so uh, working with my team and working with clients much more than I enjoyed the detail uh, and forensic sort of analysis involved in lawyering, which is so much of of being a lawyer. So I was pretty good at aspects of it, but I wasn't, I wasn't a particularly good lawyer. Uh, but I, yeah, I enjoyed bits of it. But it was by accident. That's how I became a, a lawyer. So, so I think happens to so many of us. Um, you mentioned that you're, you're, you no longer practice as a lawyer, you saw sense. So what was it that, that moved <laughs> you, <laughs> moved you from being a lawyer into something else? Um, originally, I saw an opportunity to bring together my, I was a litigator. Uh, Originally, I saw an opportunity to bring together my understanding of what causes issues for clients and and convert it into a a risk uh, practice. So um, my initial move out of law was into trying to bring together all of the learnings I'd taken from being uh, in litigation and bring it around to the front end of problems or front end of situations for clients. And I became much more interested and involved in risk management as opposed to dealing with things on the uh, once things have gone wrong. Um, so I became a risk management consultant or risk manager uh, for professional services uh, organizations and start and help them to build risk management infrastructure and influence risk cultures and, and those sorts of things. So my step out of law was to an adjacent service, an adjacency. Uh, ultimately, though, I became much more interested in the psychology of decision making, for example, and um, and some of the sort of uh, different aspects of, of risk in human systems, and that took me on a completely different path. So I've had about three or four major 
changes in career uh, over my 20 or so years in, in work. And you're now focused on client experience. So can mm. you tell us a little bit about what you do, what you see as client experience? So what I do most every day is lead a team of amazing professionals in disciplines like marketing, client engagement, uh, client relationship management, events. I mean, I run what's traditionally called a BD team. We've chosen to focus our attention and therefore our title on the client experience of the firm. So in some ways, it's a bit of a grand title for something that's quite an old construct. Uh, but I'm big on on really our name reflecting what we're trying to do. We're trying to enhance the experience of clients of the firm. Uh, so a lot of what we're doing is bringing a, an empiricism or a data-driven approach to the client experience. But a lot of what I've been doing for the last 12 months at the firm I've just joined, for example, is just deeply understanding the current experience clients have of us. Uh, that's the first step often in trying to influence that because we're often operating on the on the basis of assumption in law firms about how clients experience us. Uh, so a lot of what we've been doing over the last 12 months in particular has been focused on data, getting better quality data as to the client experience, the current client experience. So a lot of that is um, interviews and 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 uh, surveys and and trying to find out exactly how the clients are currently experiencing us as a firm. Um, then, then we're moving into a phase now where we're trying to actively influence that. And that, that at the end of the day, that's 90% uh, culture and behaviour change. You, you know, law, law firms are a human system and the interface with clients still is human. I, I don't care really how many portals we put up um, between us and the clients at the end of the day it's an interpersonal profession. So a lot of what we're, we do is actually trying to influence uh, behaviours that are consistent with a positive client experience uh, within the firm. Um, so that's um, mainly partners, but across the, the whole client journey. So if we map a journey of a client across a piece of litigation, for example, what are the touch points across that journey that enhance the client experience where the client is having a differentiated or exceptional experience? What are the things that detract from that experience? How do we maximize the former and how do we minimize the latter? It's it's not, that's not complicated. The complicated bit with client experience is uh, how do we influence the behaviors of lawyers in particular at those points in the client journey? Um, and that's where we become coaches or uh, we have to be, we have to understand organizational change and behavior. Uh, so that's, a fairly long-winded way of saying we're, we're trying to enhance the client experience now. And how have, um, how have the lawyers taken to that? Because I think using terms such as client experience, client, uh, you know, customer journeys are things that I think marketeers and business developers, you know, in other disciplines speak about a lot. I think often um, lawyers see themselves as perhaps something different from, from what happens outside. So those things don't apply to us. Are you finding that lawyers are buying into it or is it something that you're you're having to really educate them about? I tend to avoid jargon or those terms. I, I try to practice what I 
preach really. Uh, so for example, uh, for me, a lot of it is in showing rather than telling. So if I can get access, as I've done over the last 12 months, get access to a lot of clients and actually interview them effectively and, and come back with data which is inherently interesting, I don't need to even talk about a formal client listening program. What I try to create is what we call attractors. So I, I, will, I will set up an experiment, go and find some clients, talk to them, capture the data, share the data, share the insights that a good client listening interview can generate. And all I've shown them is something that they're entirely familiar with, which is a, a memo basically capturing uh, an interaction with another human being. I, I don't need to call that a client listening program. I just wait until people say, our partners say, oh, I'd really like you to talk to some of my clients about that. I find this really interesting. So I think sometimes we lead too much with the theory and with uh, um, with big projects and and try to change too much at once. Uh, I tend to start small and then let it let it expand if it's going to amplify it if it's going to if it takes. Uh, so I, I don't talk too much about things like customer journey or user centered design or all these other things that I know is in the background. Um, rather focus on the experience the partners are having of what we're trying to achieve and, and bring them data which is relevant. So often I've seen these programs fall over. Client listening is a great example. They've fallen over because the partners don't see any useful output. They don't see any insight. They don't see anything that they can't have worked out for themselves. Our job in business development or in client experience is to actually layer over what we're hearing some sort of insight, something that's valuable to the partners. And if we can't show that within two or three weeks of starting doing something, then it, it should wither on the vine. Um, so I avoid the terminology as much as possible and just focus on the experience the partners are having of what we're trying to do. And they, they're coming along. I mean, I, I am in a firm which is very open to this now, but um, they love it. They, they, they love hearing what the clients have to say. The other piece of advice, I guess, on setting these sorts of client experience programs up is don't be afraid, don't be too set on getting a complete data set out of the box. Go and talk to the fans of the firm first and build buy into the process by showing them some of the best feedback that we've had. Now, sometimes lawyers get suspicious with that because what they're looking for is the but. They're looking for, but what could we be better at? Why? Where are the, all the problems we've got? Um, so you have to balance that a little bit. Sometimes they just get a bit suspicious of data, which is entirely positive. But if you can start with the clients who are fans of the firm, firstly, it's easier to get them to participate. Secondly, the, the partners love reading these stories. And there's some exceptional stories of service in legal services, uh, which sets an aspiration for others. And it's, it starts to build energy in the process. Um, and, and just leave aside your desire to have a full set of data or a, a, a representative set of data to start with. Um, and that's how you build buy-in as you go. And you mentioned looking for the buts there. And I think, you know, there are studies that have shown that, you know, the pessimist is, is, is you know, lawyers, I think, are the only profession where pessimists flourish. Um, mm. 
and and you know we were talking about um law school and and perhaps that law school's got a part to play in that pessimism could you perhaps for our listeners explain a bit what what we were talking about uh, before we hit hit record yeah so uh, we're talking about how transformational law school is and here i'm talking about particularly about the structured legal education you'll find in the US and, and in Australia, for example, where you, you spend a number of years at university studying the law. Uh, one of the impacts that that education has been shown to have is it shifts a normal, normally distributed population across optimism, pessimism, to one standard, standard deviation towards pessimism. And pessimism is a, is a really, really useful orientation to have if what you do is you identify risk. Uh, as is being slightly sad, um, you don't want to be ebullient if you're in the process of risk management. But it sort of is predicated on the assumption that all lawyers do is identify risk. So when we, when we, it's not a particularly good orientation to have if you're focusing on uh, enriching relationships, for example, or, or if you're uh, prospecting for a new client. If you're, if you're largely pessimistic, uh, business development and, and rainmaking, as the lawyers call it, it, it can be quite a de-innovating process uh, because if, you, if we're operating on the assumption that you know, more than 50% of the, the times you approach a client, they're going to reject you and you take a pessimistic approach to that, um, you're not going to persist. It's going to be difficult to maintain that energy around uh, around things like business development. So it's very useful for the core, what we see as the core function of a lawyer, which is to uh, analyze large amounts of data for a forensic purpose to identify risk, but it's not all that much, all that useful for the stuff that sits around it. How do you manage that tension then? Do you try and, you know, I guess in my head, build a team where you've got those people who are perhaps, you know, pessimistic better at identifying risk, better at, at, at spotting those problems for clients and, and try and build in a team where you've also got those optimists who are, you know, better able to, to you know, keep smiling when someone says no, to keep believing that these things take time. Is that the way to get around it or, or is it to try and, I, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the big... One of the big things for law firms to really nail, I, I'm yet to see a law firm that gets this entirely right. Although, to be honest, the, the Americans have probably done a better job of this than most. When I say Americans, I tend to talk about New York firms, but is, is defining different roles for partners. So the American firms, the, the New York firms are quite explicit about this distinction between a rainmaker and a service partner. Rainmakers tend to be very good at bringing in business and the service partners are there as technical experts to service the needs of those clients. And they used to talk about the, you know, finders, grinders and minders, but they're quite explicit about this. And but one of the things I've found in the Australian and in UK traditions is that we expect a lot of, of partners. We have a, we've traditionally had a, a box that a partner sits in and they're meant to be good at everything. They're meant to be good at managing a team. They're meant to be good at 
at the technical. They're meant to be good at, at developing business. And then we take this egalitarian approach, approach to development and say, well, we need to develop everybody into a business generator. And, and quite often when I'm brought in to coach someone on BD, my first question is, are they any good at it? Because in my experience of coaching and adult development, um, adult human beings don't transform, right? They don't, they don't move all that much actually from where, where we first encounter them. Even traumatic experiences in life don't radically change someone's personality and their um, preferences for behavior and their mindsets. Um, so coaches can sometimes overstate their impact in these situations. Um, I, I don't tend to invest as much in people who have shown no inclination towards business development. I'd rather go and make the people who are really good at it even better or take the people who are who not are not quite sure that it's their role or they have permission to behave in this way and unlock them. But this whole thing of trying to bring everybody along to a certain standard across what is a really big balanced scorecard of expectations of a, of, a, of a partner in a law firm, I just don't think is realistic. We're expecting too much of these human beings. And um, we should get more role definition and re- role clarity around the different contributions that partners can make. And do you think that comes back to perhaps a perception that, you know, the person that somehow brings the work in is more valuable, therefore, by defining those roles, you're you're perhaps singling certain people out as as doing the you know the work that's really of value, or or do you think there's something else at play there? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to answer that without getting into some fairly treacherous areas because I at the end of the day, a rainmaker objectively probably is more valuable. Uh, delivering an exceptional client experience and answering the questions that clients have and and doing that rare air technical work that can defeat a hostile takeover with 20 minutes of attention, that, that sort of stuff, it is incredibly valuable and it does build exceptional institutional relationships with clients. But at the end of the day, you've got to get the clients in the door and you've got to feed the machine at some level. And so it's a pretty hard sell to suggest and this is another area where I think um, incentives and remuneration play some part. But um, you know, the U.S. firms would say a rainmaker is the highest remunerated person here. Interestingly, though, the big four accountants and 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 the shops like Accenture would say our most effective client relationship partners are the highest remunerated. So there is a difference in emphasis, I think, in the way that uh, some of the big four firms ap- approach the importance of institutionalizing client relationships and, and the, the role that really effective client relationship partners play relative to a rainmaker, which I think law could have a look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, some of the highest remunerated people in, in, the, in the accountants um, run $100 million clients. And that's their full-time job. I don't know of many law firms that are sitting on a client relationship could, that could justify that investment. Mm. But it's it's worth reflecting on um, the relative value for the large firms, the big global firms, of client relationship management as opposed to rainmaking. I think that's a bit out of whack in law. Mm. 
I don't know if I've answered your question. The guy who's always going to miss out in this equation, though, is the technical specialist. It's just a reality that they're going to be, um, it's going to be di more difficult for them to establish their value. Mm. I'm going to change tack slightly, um, but actually I'm going to pick up on that word value. Mm. Um, and I know that you lectured at Harvard on what's the value of a human lawyer. Um, so mm. I'm going to use that word value to segue into that. What for you is the value of a, of a human lawyer? For me, it comes down to acknowledging that law at the end of the day is an interpersonal profession. So I don't care if you work for BHP or for um, large corporates. I know that legally, the legal construct of a corporation can be our client. And so when, we, when we're entering it into the, into the um, client management systems, then um, we obviously are working for the organization. But at the end of the day, we work for humans within organizations. And if you talk to clients enough, what you find is that a lot of the things that we as lawyers value in our service is not seen as differentiating. So expertise, for example, uh, most clients feel that they could go to any of the Magic Circle, any of the Amlaw 20, any of the many of the mid-tier practices and experience the same level of expertise around the legal issue. So what's the differentiating component to experience? Quite often that's in the human space it's in this it's in the quality of attention a, a partner will offer me um, how much they inquire of me as opposed to advise me one of the things a client said to me recently was one of the things that differentiates your firm from the others i deal with is that your client your partners seem to come ready to listen and others come ready to advise. And so for me, there's a, there's a human component to performance in the client space, which I think lawyers have traditionally devalued or undervalued. They haven't seen that as as important as me demonstrating my expertise, advising the client that surely the key value that I'm creating for the client comes from the quality of my advice. I would argue actually that the key differentiating value for a client is in the, is in the comfort you create. And that's not just about whether or not you're right. It's whether the client believes in you, whether the client uh, trusts you. And if you, if you haven't achieved that threshold, it doesn't really matter how right your advice is. So for me, the, the, the real value we create is in the quality of human experience people have of us. It's, it's less in the quality of, a, of advice. Um, and so for me, that's a, a really, we should be focusing more on that than uh, developing people's technical capability. And I know I'm, I'm not, that's not a popular view, but if you look at legal education and the relative emphasis on preparing a lawyer technically 
to be right and preparing them for high quality human interaction, it's, it's way out of whack. Whereas most clients will tell you that the, the quality of human interaction is the most important thing to me. I assume that they're going to be right. So it, for me, there's, a, there's a, an imbalance basically in our emphasis around developing capabilities, particularly as we start to think about the impact of technology on law and how much of law, how much of what lawyers currently consider to be the most valuable things they do, they're actually not the best equipped to do and, and how impactful technology ultimately will be on the availability of that contribution to human lawyers. I, if I was a young lawyer now, I would be focusing much more on how do I become a more effective influencer of other human beings? How do I more effectively build interpersonal trust? How do I understand the psychology of that person's decision-making so that I can start to participate with them and come alongside them to help them than I would on um, understanding technology? You're preach preaching to the converted. There are so many ways I could go here. I, I'm kind of in my head is kind of, you know, that that trust equation and D David Meister, which, you know, yeah. an old, you know, an old equation, an old um, concept, but one that I think has stood the test of time for a reason. But again, you know, it's something that, you know, I didn't find as a lawyer. I found as a coach, I found because I've got an interest in psychology and all of these things. The it's the sad thing about the sad thing about David, though. He wrote that book for lawyers, and almost no lawyers I've ever met have read it. Whereas every investment banker in the world has read that book at some point. So, and and that whole that equation is still really powerful, particularly when you consider that intimacy over self-interest or self-orientation is where differentiation lives. Most lawyers come out of law school um, well-equipped to be reliable and credible. But where, so where would, should most of our emphasis be? It should be on the intimacy self-interest balance. Uh, but we're not really taught anything about that. We're not taught about how, how to manage that, that element of the equation. It's left up to our own devices. And it all comes back to what you were saying around listening and, uh, you know, and the, and the differentiator that your clients have identified at your firm, because actually, if you if you listen more than than you uh, than you speak, you're much more likely to, to hit that box. I, I, I have a living mind map. that I started developing about nine years ago. Uh, and I just started asking clients one question, which is, tell me a Tell me a story. It's not even a question, really. It's an invitation. Tell me a story about your favourite lawyer. And then I, the second part of the in, invitation is the lawyer who you, you, you're almost waiting for something to happen so you can have a, an opportunity to work with them again. On that mind map, uh, well, first of all, what doesn't appear on that mind map is expertise. It's not even there. When they start to talk about their favourite lawyers, the ones that they, they love working with, it's all in this interpersonal space. It's all about 
one of my favorite responses to that invitation is, you know, he never embarrasses me, ever. And I think about how often the expert is sitting in a meeting with the economic buyer, the person who's purchasing their legal services, their boss, their boss's boss, two members of the board, and this desire we have to credentialize ourselves and to, to sort of spew advice without thinking, am I embarrassing the general counsel? Have I, have I identified something that they haven't picked up? Is there, is there a way that I could actually bring this into the conversation and still position them for success? That interpersonal dynamic is, is quite complicated, but it's, it, it, you know, this, what this client was saying to me was that the, lawyer, the really good lawyers are attending to that complexity. They're understanding that my status is in play here. I need to attend to that. Even if I'm right, I need to attend to that before I attend to the advice. And, and some lawyers would say to me, that's not my job. My job, my job in any of these circumstances is to, is to deliver the advice I feel is, is the right advice. That's my professional responsibility. That may be so, but there's different ways you can get that advice into a conversation that doesn't embarrass your client inadvertently. But if you're not even attending to that, uh, you'll trip over. The, the the real issue in the room. The real issue in the room is not legal at this point. The real issue in the legal in the room may well be status or the relationship between the CEO and the general counsel. Um, and the really good lawyers are attending to all of that. And it's part of the problem. And um, uh, you know, I mean, we we've kind of touched on the fact that these are skills that you don't learn at law school. Um, but you know, reflecting on you know, I started life in in a big law firm. You know, they're also skills that you don't really learn when you're in, in a firm, because, you know, if you're in a big firm and I know a smaller firms are perhaps slightly different, but when you're in a big firm, you don't have that client contact. You don't have that ability to be able to start to, you know, the, the point where you need these skills, you're already pretty senior in your career. And actually, you've already, you know, demonstrated that you're there because, you know, you, you know, your staff, you've got the technical expertise and you're almost in a position where you can't be challenged if you're bad at these interpersonal skills. So, it, it, you know, that for me, it seems to be a big problem. And I know that there's a focus at the minute of let's try and teach this more at, at law school. But actually, if those aren't the skills that then get developed when you move into a firm and when you actually yeah. need them, you've either forgotten or, you know, actually they've been devalued because they're not skills that, that you've been, you know, trained on or, or marked on or whatever it might be. Um, you know, how do you correct that? Well, actually, I think this is actually one of the big opportunities with technology because at the moment, what's occupying those lawyers? So when a lawyer comes out of law school, I had one of my students contact me recently from, um, from the US and he said, I've just been, I've just been a, employed in a large law firm uh, and I've been told that I'll be doing essentially populating Excel spreadsheets with uh, the outcomes of document review for the first two years of my career. And, uh, and then I may get a chance at some point to sit in a deposition and, um, but I won't be able to say anything until sort of four or five years in. So I think one of the great opportunities with technology is, and one of the great challenges with 
the impact that technology will ultimately have. I'm not saying that we're in any way near a penetration where this was actually going to make any difference. But ultimately, I don't think that any human being should be doing that task. The fact that we can still charge three or $400 or $500 an hour for someone to do that um, is not going to last forever. And so then the question is, what do we get those people? What are those people going to be doing if they're not doing that? And it's also based on this fallacious belief that somehow doing that over and over again makes them a better lawyer, that it's actually in their interests, that there is a developmental interest in getting them to do these menial, ridiculous tasks. And so, which is not true. I mean, it is a, a, there are much more efficient ways to develop expertise than to have someone review large volumes of documents. Now, I know I'm talking about a world which is changing rapidly. We're not, we're not seeing a lot of lawyers in large firms doing this as a task anymore. But hopefully what happens is we shift over in those early years of experience to some of the stuff that's going to make a bigger difference. And we, ex we expose in a systematic way uh, younger lawyers to uh, more interactions with clients, more opportunities to demonstrate the behaviours we're talking about and to reinforce them. But I agree that at the moment, as we sit here now, the best advice I could give to someone joining a very large firm, I'm not, I'm not, one of the reasons I've joined the firm I'm in now is because we really don't subscribe to this, but is keep your head down, do the task in front of you uh, and um, be compliant. Because that's essentially what we ask of a young lawyer. Um, which is sort of criminal when you consider that these are the smartest people in the world, that we ask them to do this for a period of time, and then when they, when they get their stripes, they can move to the next level. Uh, there's, there's, there's a much more efficient way to develop expertise, but at the moment the incentives are not aligned with developing expertise in an accelerated way. The sad thing is that we are losing very good talent out of this system because when the, our, our young lawyers are increasingly not signing up for this deal. Uh, and what we have to be mindful of is that the path to partnership, which is if, if that's their goal, has, has extended significantly in most of these big shops. And it's gone from, in, in, in my generation, four, five, maybe six years uh, to 11, 12, 13 years. That's a very different ask of someone to just suppress all of these things that you think will be important at some point, continue your curiosity and interest in them, perhaps do some of your own self-directed learning for 11 years, and then we'll expose you to a client. I just don't think that's adding up anymore as a proposition. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why I've moved out of the big firms into a smaller firm where um, lawyers are getting exposed to these things uh, very early in their career, and they're getting uh, a richer experience of being a lawyer, the human aspects of being a lawyer. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, smiling because memories flooding back of sitting in in rooms with uh, due diligence at three in the morning, trying to to go through paper and wondering what I did at at law school to deserve it. But um, 
But also, <laughs> um, you know, I think for me that one of the the richest experience I had in my training contract was doing a client's secondment, which, yeah. you know, just gave me, well, first of all, the ability to talk to the client, but to learn so much more than I would have done sat, sat in the office with, with, you know, my supervisor. Yeah. It's also interesting, again, to reflect, I think, we reflect on the experience we've had and, and you grew up in the UK system and I, I trained in the, in the Australian system. Again, there's not a whole lot of people floating around in New York firms teaching people BD. And the reason they're not floating around teaching people business development is because they've been developing their business since they got there. The other thing that they're very clear on in the New York firms is you are selling yourself from the moment you walk in here uh, in a lot of these firms you're you've got a responsibility to sell yourself to a rainmaker at first instance or to a, a, a talented senior associate you've got to develop relationships that are going to carry that are going to help you build a practice and they're quite explicit about this and so what i found interesting in going into some of those firms was that there's not a lot of people floating around coaching people in this stuff as they approach partnership. Uh, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, how do you meet someone's needs? How do you connect with somebody? How do you sell uh, your value proposition to somebody? They've been doing internally since they got there. Now, a lot of people would say, God, that's so inhumane in itself. It's sort of, um, where does the support come from? Where does the, they have their issues. Those cultures have their issues. But one thing they're not teaching people how to do at the transition to partnership is how to build business. Um, so I, again, I think there's something we could. There's there's probably an end in there. Could we could we make it more explicit on the way in? This is your responsibility. Because I think there's a lot of. I'm, I'm not a big fan of training as a as a response to this stuff. Um, it, it sort of fosters learned helplessness. It's it's the wrong tool. It's not it's not timed correctly. It's not just in time for when they need it. I'm not a big fan of, you know, massive induction programs that prepare partners to be a partner once they've got there. You, you need to start to construct experiences and then construct reflective dialogue around those experiences earlier in the process if you want these people both to stay and you want them to, to become effective partners. Um, and then also acknowledging that people have different roles, that some, some people are going to go through their entire career uh, as a technical expert and that's okay there's a place here for you we've spoken a bit about you know what what particularly in the UK and, and Australia perhaps could look to the US maybe pick some things up I think probably vice versa as well looking to the future what skills do you think lawyers are going to have to have and what advice would you give to law firms in, te in terms of where their focus should be well, the first thing I'd say in respect of law firms is there's not a great imperative to change anything particularly. They're, they remain a really successful business. And this whole, this whole mythology that's floating around at the moment around some sort of burning platform and, and there's going to be massive disruption, I, I don't think is grounded in fact. What I would say to the young lawyers, because it is going to be your responsibility, so those people who are approaching law school or graduation and, and what should I focus on in my own development that, that it's going to equip me to be a really, you know, a truly excellent lawyer. Um, 
I'd, I'd focus on psychology. Uh, I, I, I helped um, set up the first ever course in the psychology of judgment and decision-making. And it's still amazing to me how little we understand about the human process we're trying to influence. Same with in-house counsel. What's an in-house counsel there to do? An in-house counsel is there to influence better quality decisions. How much do we know about what reduces the quality of a decision? What do we know about groupthink? What do we know about the predictable errors of judgment? What do we know about heuristics and biases? What do we know about, uh, other than going to some sort of diversity training, what, what do we know about these things that we're trying to influence? So I would actually encourage developing more of a technical knowledge or an understanding of how decisions are made by individuals and how decisions are made by groups. Um, one of the things that in-house counsel are commonly called on to influence is risk culture. We get the risk part all right, but the culture bit, what do we know about complex adaptive human systems? What do we know about organizational design? All these things are adjacencies or we need to understand enough to be able to influence effectively a human system. That's generally what we're trying to do. We're trying to come alongside a human system and influence it. Uh, and, and what you come to realize after a while is that being right isn't enough. You know, having the right legal advice and saying it over and over again is not sufficient to influence a better quality of decision. So advice is not the mechanism. You need to engage adult human beings in a dialogue that is impactful if you're going to actually influence a better quality decision. What do we know about that? So the first area of focus I would have is on psychology, the psychology of decision-making, the psychology of group behaviours, the psychology of organisational design, so organisational psychology, um, that, and then a, a, a more detailed understanding of the psychology of emotions or, or emotions themselves. I mean, there's a debate as to whether or not emotions are part of psychology or vice versa. Uh, and it, and the, the purists would say that emotions are really just a reflection of psychology in some way, but an understanding of emotions, because if, if, if our product is emotional, if, if we're selling comfort through trusting relationships, how much do we know about that? I mean, how many lawyers know the trust equation? These, these, are, these are things that I think young lawyers should really be uh, focusing on developing within themselves. And the third one is, is, it's not a capability, it's more of a mindset. We, it's, and it's not really collaboration, but collaboration is part of it. I think we have to get a lot more comfortable with uh, genuine co-creation. Because one of, the, one of the artifacts of our profession or the things that we, we've grown used to as a profession is distance from the client in order to consider and contemplate our response. I had a general counsel say to me, one of my clients say to me, um, it's one of my favorite quotes from a general counsel, I am literally sitting in a room with 15 minutes with a diversity of expertise represented trying to solve a problem with no precedent every day. 
if you're not in that room with me, you're no use to me. I, I don't even have the time to consider how I would brief that out. So the, the, this whole disconnection, this distance we've created between the client and us, we, we need to become a lot more comfortable in our expertise emerging in the context of a conversation around an iteratively solving a problem. Uh, and that's, that's a place that you'll find the consultants are much more comfortable in. Lawyers retreat from it because uh, we're not equipped to co-create. And what you'll find the consultants doing is even if they can't contribute their expertise, they start to facilitate. They, 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 they will always be playing a role that's trying to move towards a solution. Uh, whereas quite often we retreat when our expertise is not in play. We need to lean in at that point. So it's this comfort in complexity. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Comfort in complexity, uh, user-centered design, sitting alongside, coming alongside clients and a diversity of inputs to co-create solutions. That's, there's a lot wrapped up in that um, that we need to get our heads around as a profession. Otherwise, we're just not going to find ourselves in the rooms that matter the most. Uh, now, that's a long way from where a lot of senior partners would say they're operating. Uh, but then, again, the best senior partners I've worked with, the best lawyers I've worked with, are entirely comfortable in that setting. They'll just sit there and they'll wait or they'll participate to a point and they'll wait until there's something that they can do and then they'll, they're in and they're adding value. Um, I just think we should be starting to operate in that way a bit earlier or, or lawyers should be finding ways to operate in that way a little bit earlier in their careers and practice that because that's, that's quite disorientating for a deep subject matter expert sometimes. And it's interesting actually because I think clients are asking lawyers to lean in more in subjects like diversity and subject you know sustainability mental health all of these things where you know the fact that you know the law is absolutely irrelevant but actually there are these big issues that you know in-house teams are grappling with they want their lawyers to to get on board with it and maybe that's that's where some of these firms can start by leaning into some of these issues and co-creating in some of these areas where, you know, it's not going to be their expertise that's going to come up with the answer. It's going to be the way that they negotiate these challenges as, you know, as individuals that's going to make the difference. Yeah, our clients are sitting in genuine complexity. And one of my concerns with legal education, I hate to keep coming back to it, but it really is fascinated with mere, um, the merely complicated. Why aren't we... Why aren't we giving rooms full of lawyers and engineers and business school? Why, why aren't we setting up these collaborative environments to solve for global warming? Why don't we throw them a, 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 a really complex problem in a complex human system rather than let them autonomously sort of consider a merely technically complicated problem? And if you think about substantively, I think, law school is still focused on stuff that I would classify as complicated, not complex. They're protecting the students from complexity. Whereas most, if you play it all forward to the end of the supply chain and you look at an, a general counsel and what they're wrestling with, that's genuinely complex. 
and, and it's every day. Every day they're trying to come up with a solution to something they have no precedent for, that um, they don't know where to start. And that and that's not a place that I think as a profession we're entirely comfortable yet, but we need to get comfortable. And we need to know that our expertise isn't going to desert us. And we can add value if we're not within our expertise. There is value we can create by just being there and 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 co-creating with the um, with the client or with other experts. Um, Maybe then we so, become that that trusted advisor that so many lawyers say that they are, but are so far away from being. And as I've said, the best lawyers I've worked with and the best lawyers I'm working with today are comfortable in that space. They're just fairly rare. It's rare air um, to be able to sit in that setting and feel you're adding value when you're not uh, necessarily regurgitating advice. That's, that's not the only value we can add. I think that is a really nice place to, to end on. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak. It's um, it, it's a subject that I find fascinating, so I could go on for, for forever, but I won't. Um, but thank you ever so much. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was Claire Rayson talking to Anthony Kearns, Chief Client Experience Officer at Lander and Rogers. And Claire is with me now. Claire, great conversation and thanks very much for that. The one thing that really struck a note for me was, was when the topic became to lawyers and pessimism. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? And uh, interesting to hear how perhaps law school makes people more pessimistic, um, which might create better lawyers. But I wonder whether when looking at change, that pessimism is something that gets in the way. I can see how pessimism can be a useful skill for lawyers, but it's going to really kind of restrain people and make them so fearful of change. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, we've spoken about this before and I think lawyers starting to recognise that actually perhaps part of what makes them a good lawyer is this trait of, of being pessimistic and, and thinking about where that might be helpful, but also where that might be holding them back is a conversation that perhaps needs to happen more often within law firms. And optimism and preparing, being prepared to take a risk are perhaps just as important in the toolbox as pessimism might be. I agree. Well, thanks, Claire. Another fantastic episode. Thanks ever so much. No problem. It was lovely chatting to you. Lawyers Coach is brought to you by Client Talk and Hansard Coaching. If you're enjoying this series, please rate us on your podcast provider so that others can find us. If you're a lawyer and would like to take part in Lawyers Coach, please visit our website, lawyercoach.co.uk, for further details and you can also join the conversation on our linkedin group lawyers coach if there are any topics you'd like to hear us discuss then just get in touch